the table, when we think about when we think about mealtime, when we think about the table, uh, it can be a divisive or a unifying thing, can't it? Like think of think of all the examples that you can think of, even in your favorite stories from TV, from books, from movies, uh, where there's one character eating alone, uh, maybe in a in a crowded room full of people, and yet they're very much alone at one table by themselves. Uh, and this scene is is put into the story to tell us what, as the audience, it's to tell us this person is an outcast. There's no other reason for them to be in a crowded room full of people and yet eating by themselves. Uh, but for some reason, they're they're an outcast because we don't feel the the outcast status maybe more heavily or more poignantly anywhere uh, other than the table. Uh, there's it's like there's something intuitive inside of us that knows that eating together around the table is, is meant to be a communal act that it's something to be shared together. And so we we feel this deeply in the story. But then even in the same story in the same uh, moment that same lunch table can be an instrument of of unifying um, that that starts the beginning of a beautiful friendship when another character walks up and says, "Is this seat taken?" Right, and as an audience, you smile and you're like, "Oh, they don't have to be alone anymore. They're now going to be." now going to be great friends. Uh, and this this thing that was once a marker of isolation and dividedness is now an instrument of bringing things together. Uh, we can probably think of, of real-world examples as well where the table plays both of these roles. Uh, sadly, we can we can look back and even think of historical examples like segregated lunch counters where service is refused to certain patrons based on the color of their skin and the table is used as a weapon of divisiveness in a broken world. But maybe you think of maybe you think of other examples um, uh, where the opposite of true. You think of um, authentic Mexican lunches that were made for you and your family. You think of the the tears that well up in grandma's eyes when everybody, when the whole family is together to get again at Christmas time and her heart is full and her dreams have finally come true as all the kids and the grandkids are gathered around a table together again. Why is it that uh, that a meal has so much dormant, volatile potential to go one way or the other? I think it's because we know that there's more that's going on than just the consumption of food. That when you share a table with someone, there is a there's a commonality expressed. There's a mutual embrace that takes place uh, when you when you gather around a table together. The the seats around the table, and to some degree, are level ground. This is why large wealthy historic estates would have servants quarters with the servants kitchen where the servants would eat their meals at separate times from the family and the guest to draw clear lines of distinction that there is not commonality here that we don't eat this at the same table that there is a hierarchy because across time and culture and geography eating together meant something uh, more than just something, eating together means a lot. Uh, and it was no different in Jesus's day. Uh, who, What you ate, when you ate, how you ate, maybe most particularly who you ate with spoke volumes, uh, which should leave us very little surprised that the table would be an area that Jesus raised a lot of our eyebrows. This was one of the most controversial 
topics in Jesus's ministry. One of the biggest ignition points that that caused friction and lit a spark in the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. One of the biggest things he got criticized for, one of the things that drew the most ire from the powers that be in Jerusalem was how Jesus operated around the table. And in today's passage that Spencer just read, we see just that. We see that Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Or as we know from Matthew's gospel, he was also called Matthew. Uh, And he was sitting at the tax office. And Jesus walks up to this tax collector and invites him by saying, follow me. And what what does Matthew or Levi do? He gets up and he follows him. Luke tells us here in verse 28, leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Which is a, a pretty incredible response to Jesus's invitation, right? This immediate getting up and leaving everything behind to follow him. It's it's not inconsistent with the call to discipleship that we've already seen when Jesus met Simon Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, on the lake, and he invited them to come with him and be fishers of men and come follow him. Uh, Luke tells us that that these fishermen brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Uh, that dropping everything, whatever the cost, is the invitation to follow Jesus. But you could you could argue that presumably uh, had things with Jesus not worked out that these these fishermen brothers probably could have at some point taken back up their nets and resumed their fishing careers like James and John's dad owned the business. Um, but this certainly would not have been true for Levi, right? Like what employer is going to rehire this tax collector that just walked out on his job and left his tax office and everything he had collected for the day unattended? Levi's immediate call to drop everything and follow Jesus is is admirably challenging. This is a crossing the Rubicon kind of moment. There's There's no turning back for Matthew because after all, he was a tax collector. A tax collector hired by Rome to exact payment from his own countrymen on behalf of their foreign oppressors. Not a dream gig. Tax collectors who habitually used the the opportunity that their station afforded them uh, to rob and extort their neighbors, to line their own pockets and cushion their own lifestyle with the surplus. Who would Levi, the tax collector, have turned to should things with Jesus have not worked out? Uh, Like, I don't think Rome was the most forgiving of employers. Uh, Rome does not strike me as generous and forgiving and, and likely to say, oh, Levi, don't worry about it. Like, we understood. You followed your heart. Um, Have your tax office back, buddy. And that's not generally the way Rome operated. And I doubt there were many uh, Jewish businessmen who had ads out on Indeed.com looking for hardworking former tax collectors with at least four years experience nickel and diming their countrymen and their fellow business partners. Like tax collectors were not popular guys. Luke continues to make this clear. These, this is not a well-liked bunch. But still, Levi follows Jesus, he hosts a grand banquet at his house, and he invites all of his friends, of course, many of whom happen to be 
tax collectors. Like, after all, who else would be friends with these guys? They got to stick together. And the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they complain to Jesus' disciples, of whom Levi is now one, and they say, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I think first we need to notice that this is just one grouping of people, tax collectors and sinners. The, the terms are synonymous to them. Uh, they aren't saying, you eat with a group of sinners, and then there's a, this other group of people in attendance that just happen to be employed as tax collectors. They're saying, this group that you are sharing a table with are undesirables. They're tax collectors, sinners. Uh, if, I, if I told you that a particular area of the city um, was filled with drifters and vagrants and vagabonds, you would not go there and walk up to each individual and say, excuse me, sir, are, are you, which category do you fit under? Are you a drifter or a vagrant or a vagabond? I'm just trying to take a poll here. Like you would recognize that what I was saying is, is one group of people, one, this is one pot, and the Pharisees are not pleased to see the crowd that shares a table with Jesus. Why? What is, what is the insinuation behind their frustration? Uh, it's mostly that Jesus and his disciples are corrupted by association. In their mind, by eating with them, Jesus and his disciples are corrupt by association for one of two reasons. Either this reveals their own loose moral character and confirms that that they lack as much integrity as their table mates do, or um, this reveals that they've now been contaminated, that their proximity to these undesirable people makes them social outcasts as well, that that sinfulness is contracted around the table like cooties are spread around a middle school cafeteria. Now, maybe you hear that and you say, like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's, that's not how things work. You don't just catch sinfulness from being near sinful people. Guilt isn't passed around like a cold. And you would be right. Uh, sin is an, an in-here problem, not an out-there problem. The, the sin that is in your own heart poses a much greater threat to you uh, than any risk incurred from other people's sin. But I think um, before we just write this question off, before we kind of relegate the Pharisees' concern too quickly, um, we, should, we should stop and don't take the question lightly. Don't just casually write this objection off as silly. Because after all, like Psalm 1 says, Happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Uh, King Solomon, in all his wisdom, Proverbs 13, says, The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but if a companion of fools will suffer harm. And then later in Proverbs 22, he says, Don't make friends with an angry person. Why? Or you will learn his ways. If you hang out with angry people, you are likely to become more angry, to, to replicate what you see in your friends. And before you think that maybe this is just an Old Testament, New Testament distinction here, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 asks, what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? This is a, this is a real legitimate question. 
Uh, There is reason to ask it. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? After all, the scriptures make it clear that, that sin does have a powerfully corrupting effect. So why do you eat with sinners? And, and this is the question that we want to ask today. First, we want to ask it of Jesus in the text. Why does he eat and drink this way? And then to ask it of ourselves. Why, why do you eat and drink? Does your table look like Jesus's? So, why does Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I think we find three answers to that question from the text. So here we go. First answer. I think we find in the, in the larger context of Luke. I think we find in what Luke is doing. If we zoom out and see what Luke is trying to communicate in this portion of the narrative, here's what we find. Uh, Luke chapter 3 uh, starts with the, the prophetic preaching of John the Baptist with Jesus being baptized, and then it finishes with Jesus's family genealogy. Luke, in his genealogy, traces this all the way back to Adam. In other words, chapter what Luke announces in chapter 3 is here is Jesus. He's on the scene. His ministry is beginning, and he is coming for everything. This is the new Adam. All creation is being undone and redone. All things are being made new. Jesus is coming for everything. And then that's exactly what we see from the beginning of chapter four all the way until the end of chapter six. We have example after example after example, demonstration after demonstration that Jesus has authority over everything. Starting in in Luke four, the devil can't touch Jesus. Comes to Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus' authority is far stronger than his. The scriptures, Jesus teaches them in the synagogue in Nazareth with absolute authority. No one knows them better. No one has mastered the scriptures better than Jesus. How about when he's leaving Nazareth? There's an angry mob that surrounds him. That angry mob? Powerless. Jesus passes right through them and went on his way. Unclean evil spirits. There is a a demon that literally cries out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And the answer is everything. Jesus has everything to do with you, unclean spirits. Jesus has everything to do with everything. He's coming for all of it. Fevers, sicknesses, diseases, he rebukes them and he heals them with a word. Fish, complete mastery. There's, there's skilled fishermen are out for days catching nothing, and Jesus gets into the boat, and the nets are f- so full that the boat is on the point of sinking. Leprosy. It's done. It's finished. Other people run away from lepers for fear that the leprosy will contaminate it. Jesus, leprosy runs away from Jesus because he, he contaminates the leprosy. Jesus doesn't catch leprosy. Lepers catch Jesus. This is what Luke is trying to show us over and over. Uh, We have this amazing story where Jesus meets a paralyzed man. He, He leans down and he heals the man of his biggest disability, which is what? His sin. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And the skeptics in the crowd grumble and they ask, who has authority over sin? And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, says, me, I do. Authority over your thoughts? 
that I just heard without you saying them. And authority over sin. Authority over everything. Everything else. Like paralysis. Don't believe me? Watch. Get up and walk. And the man stands up and walks. Paralysis is gone. Meaning what? Sins also gone. That, and that is the point in Luke's gospel where we find our passage today. Right on the heels of all of that. Right in the middle of these demonstrations of literally everything that Jesus has authority over. Why does Jesus eat with sinners? Because Jesus has authority bigger than their sin. When Jesus comes close to sinners, the sin germs don't jump on Jesus. Jesus invades the sinner and the sin runs for the hills. He's not at risk of contamination. You know those uh that like classic moment in in superhero or sci-fi or fantasy movies where there's like two characters that they shoot some kind of like energy beam attack at each other and it meets somewhere in the middle. Sometimes it just like causes an explosion and just blows both of them backwards. But there's other times where it like it meets in the middle and it connects and both of them are just kind of holding out trying to see who's power or magic is stronger than the other ones and that like conjunction point between the two kind of goes back and forth until one of them slowly gains the upper hand and it just starts moving steadily that direction until that person wins what luke is demonstrating is that when jesus comes up against anything he always wins it's it's not uh it's not an arm wrestling match between Jesus and the power of leprosy. It's not an arm wrestling match between Jesus and the power of sin. He obliterates all of that. It's probably not smart to go up against an enemy if that enemy is going to overpower you with their destructive force. Unless you're obliterate all of them, unless you're stronger than all of them. The Pharisees ask, why would Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Won't he be consumed by their sin? And Luke's first answer seems to be, no, Jesus doesn't get consumed. He consumes. You remember the paralytic? Like Jesus just demonstrated that he has every authority over sin. The second reason why Jesus and his disciples eat with sinners it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the direct answer that Jesus gives to the question. Which leads us to just pause for just a minute and say, like, if you are sick, if you are hurting, if you're struggling, Jesus came for you. Whoever you are in the room, wherever you came from, if you come in even with feelings of like, I'm, I'm just not sure if I measure up, like, I don't, I'm just not sure if I've got what it takes, like if I qualify for Jesus or for his people, like I, I messed up. I'm, I'm ashamed of some of the things that I've done. I've got skeletons in my closet. I've got ghosts in my past that haunt me. There's some days that I frankly don't like myself all that much. <laughs> Friend, that's congratulations. You passed the interview. That is the criteria needed. 
Jesus has come for you. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why does Jesus eat with people like this? Why does Jesus eat with people like us? It's the same reason that Jesus does everything that he does. To bring glory to God the Father by reconciling and redeeming that which has been corrupted by sin. This is the whole reason for the incarnation. This is the whole reason that Jesus came. The the impetus behind the Son of God taking on flesh and blood is the same motivation that drives Jesus to Levi's dinner table. Luke 19, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is why he came. The light of the world come into the world so that those who live and walk in darkness might no longer remain in darkness. Criticizing Jesus for eating with sinners is like criticizing a doctor for spending too much time with sick people. And both of them make about as much sense as criticizing light for flooding dark rooms. It's, it's just what light does. Now, for, for clarity's sake, the whole teaching of Scripture is clear that all of us are sinners. Jesus is not drawing a distinction here between a certain class of people that are sinners that he came for and others that are righteous that he has no business with. All of us are sinners. Jesus has come for all of us. None of us are righteous, which, which means that Jesus came for the Pharisee too not just the tax collector. The only problem was that the Pharisee had not yet realized that he was a sinner. He was still under the false assumption that he was righteous. The tax collector, on the other hand, knew that he was a sinner, threw himself in repentance on Jesus, and invited all of his sinner friends to come to the table too. So the lesson here is not, sin is good, righteousness is bad. The lesson here is that all of us are sinners, and praise to God that that is who Jesus came for. The third reason why Jesus that we see in the text why Jesus eats with sinners uh, comes actually comes from the following few verses, and it's, it's connected to the question of why do we eat and drink? Period. Uh, Luke tells us that after Jesus responded that he has come for those who are sick, he says this, Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. In other words, why are you even around a table? Like others demonstrate their devotion by fasting, and they disciple their disciples by having them abstain from food as, a, as an exercise to shape and mold their character. But you don't. Like your disciples make it a habit to be around the table with food and drink. Why is that? And Jesus very simply responds, the wedding guests don't fast while the bridegroom is with them. His disciples eat and drink because they make up a wedding party. Why do you eat and drink? Because every meal is the anticipation of the coming feast. Every meal is a celebration of the bridegroom. Uh, Matthew 25 tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like bridesmaids who go out to celebrate and welcome the long-awaited arrival of the groom. 
John the Baptist himself preached about, about Jesus' coming, and this is what he said. He said, the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So, this joy of mine is complete. When I, uh, when I think about some of the times in my life that I've just been, uh, just felt like really happy, like that just kind of grinning from ear to ear kind of happiness, a, a number of them would honestly be at the wedding of some of my best friends. Uh, why is that? Uh, it, I promise you, it definitely was because I, not because I had to pay money to rent a suit for the occasion. Uh, it definitely wasn't because I had to wear a suit and tie for the occasion. I could have done without that. But I was super happy and proud and excited and all of that because it was for them. Like, it was their day. And I I love them. Now, if you don't know this, normally when guys are hanging out together, we show our affection for each other in different ways. We show affection for each other by trying to beat each other and like tease each other mercilessly and humiliate each other by just saying things like, bro, you are trash at this game. Like that's how we communicate affection for one another. But on their wedding day and on the events at the events kind of surrounding the wedding, something is something's different. The teasing kind of all gets replaced by by hyping them up by being excited for them. And so all of us who maybe two weeks ago were ribbing each other and teasing each other and making fun of each other while we were playing video games, this same group of guys is now all walking awkwardly down the aisle with girls that we don't know, looking ridiculous to stand in front of a group of people who couldn't care less whether we were there or not. And we're all doing it smiley and teary-eyed. And the reason is because, like, that's our boy. <laughs> like, we, we love him. And today is all about him. The groom's friend stands by and rejoices greatly. And John says, this joy of mine is complete now that Jesus the King has come. Because this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a celebration of the groom. Why do Jesus' disciples eat and drink? Because the Christian life is all about Jesus. The Christian life is full and joyful and celebratory because Jesus is our King. Now, in the next verse, Jesus, Jesus tells us that there's, there's times coming when his disciples are once again going to fast and pray and wait. And so we, his church that kind of lives in the overlap as Jesus has come and broken into the world and we still await the coming of the kingdom at his return, we feast and we fast. We fast and we pray and we wait uh, but we also feast with great joy and we sit eagerly down to the table because we know that every meal proclaims the, the story of the kingdom. Every meal that we eat puts the gospel on display. Every time we sit around the table, we remember that that food only exists because a good God provided it. And of all of the good things that our God provided, none of them were greater than Christ. We sit around the table enjoying the Lord's good gifts because we know that one day we're going to enjoy them all anew in the kingdom thanks to Jesus. And why do that alongside of those who are far from the kingdom? How better 
to invite sinners to repentance than to display the beauty of the kingdom feast that awaits. So to summarize, why do you and your disciples eat and drink, Jesus? Because every meal puts the kingdom of God on display. Why do you do it with sinners? Because that's who I've come to invite into the kingdom. Well, aren't you guys contaminated by association? No. Jesus has mastery over all things. The table's his. The power to forgive sin is also his. This is why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. How about you? Why do you eat and drink? What does your table look like? Who sits around it? Does your life resemble Jesus in this area? If our tables don't look like Jesus's, we have a problem. Something is wrong. So how do we know? What should they look like? And what should we do? The first thing that I would say uh, is eat every meal with the gospel on full display. Eat every meal with the gospel on full display. When Jesus sits down to a meal with his disciples, the primary goal is not simply calorie consumption. Uh, Mealtime serves several different purposes, right? You can eat for a variety of different reasons. Why is it that you eat and drink rather than fasting? Like, why do you eat rather than forego eating? What are some of the possible answers to this question? Like, maybe the table's just a refilling station. You need food like a car needs gas. Life is about productivity. You've got places to be, things to do, tasks to churn out. It doesn't really matter, like, what or when you eat. You are just looking for fuel. If they made a quick and easy, tasteless bar in eco-friendly packaging that you could take on the go— that would be just fine with you. Like you wouldn't even have to slow down. That would be ideal. But maybe the maybe the table is a place of escape. Like life is pressing in. Things are stressful. Everything's just painful and unpleasant. And food is a retreat, an escape, a safe haven in a scary world. You're sad or scared or anxious. Maybe maybe you're just tired or bored. But at least you can escape all of those things for a few minutes and just treat yourself to something good. Maybe the table is about sculpting the physique that you want. You count your macros and measure your portions and you prep for optimal performance in the gym. Maybe you don't even know why you eat. You just do it. It's what everyone does. It's like breathing or brushing your teeth. It's just part of the routine. It's nothing special. It's just a thing. We eat three square meals a day. But wouldn't you agree that none of these reasons really seem to match how Jesus answers the question? What if the table isn't mundane? What if instead of being your refilling station or your safe haven or your laboratory, what if the table is actually more like a stage? What if it's a place to act out a beautiful story? Doesn't that sound more like Jesus? Why do you eat and drink? Because the bridegroom is here. Why why more fish than our boat can handle? Because I will make you fishers of men. Why, Why lamb 
and bitter herbs. Because God saw the tears of his people and provided a substitute to redeem you from bondage. Why bread and wine? Because this is my body that's broken and my blood that's poured out for you. When Jesus sits around the table, it's an opportunity for him to tell a story. What if you sat down at the table the same way, for the same reason, to display the gospel? What if that was your main motivation for sitting down to eat, was to display the gospel? We, we sit down, and before we eat, we pray. We, we say grace. What does that even mean? Maybe, maybe your family grew up calling it blessing the food. I grew up calling it saying grace. Um, but I, I kind of like that, because that, that's what we do. Before we eat, we declare, this food is here solely as a result of the Lord's grace to us. And we are going to recount and remember his grace. This act of eating is a a reminder, a testimony of God's grace. What if our tables demonstrated grace as people who were far off were gathered near, as strangers turned into neighbors, turned into family? What if around the table sins were confessed and Jesus was proclaimed and forgiveness was extended? Do you eat haphazardly because it's just a thing that we do? Just don't really make too much of it. Or do you eat like Jesus, seeing every meal as a dress rehearsal for the coming feast, an opportunity to once again demonstrate that God is the good king and he's making all things new? Eat every meal with the gospel on full display. And then second, direct your life towards lostness. If, if your table is to resemble Jesus's, it needs to be surrounded with lost people. Do you regularly eat with outcasts? Is your life directed towards the margins to put yourself in close proximity with those who need Jesus? If, if Jesus is the great physician, if you actually believe that, are you gathering sick people around you regularly? When is the last time that you had dinner guests that were rough enough around the edges to raise the eyebrows of your neighbors? Because Jesus did. Jesus invited people to dinner that made the people around him squirm in their seats. Throughout his life and ministry, the people that he ate with left others uncomfortable. He spent time with crowds that made his mother and brothers say, like, Jesus, can you just back off the throttle a little bit and, and think about your family? If Jesus's table fellowship made waves and drew criticism, uh, but yours looks safely like everyone else's in your social circle, then don't you think that's a sign that you're missing something? If, if Jesus's table fellowship made other people squirm and ours looks no different than anyone in middle-class Atlantic Canada, then something is probably wrong. Don't, don't let things stay that way. Direct your life towards lostness. Make whatever change you need to make, no matter how drastic, to make your life and your table more closely resemble Jesus's. Starting now. Like this week, look for opportunities to move towards the margin, to move towards people outside of where you feel comfortable. 
scientific studies show that when given the option, people tend to form friendships with, with other people most like themselves. Similar age, similar background, religion, socioeconomic level. In fact, like they say that the more diverse the the pool is to pull from, the more likely, the more uh, the la- less diverse people's friend group are going to be because they have more options, and so they have the luxury of gathering around those that are most like them. That people tend to to move towards, to gravitate towards the people who look and sound and act just like them. This should not be true of us. This should not be true of Jesus' people. Not in the name of diversity, but because Jesus' people, like Jesus, move towards other, those that others don't. Move towards those that others don't want to and invite them near to the kingdom. So put that into practice. Move towards those that others won't and invite them near the kingdom. Halifax is the fastest growing city in Canada right now. There are people immigrating here from all over the place. It is not hard to find marginalized people who don't look like you. God is bringing them to your door. Move towards them. Seek out those relationships and put the gospel on display. You you can't walk downtown right now without passing homeless encampments everywhere. Stop and invite someone to dinner. Direct your life towards lostness and put the gospel on display. Who cares what your neighbors think? Live like Jesus. It's way sweeter and way better. As we take every chance, as we eat every meal to put the gospel on display, as we direct all of our lives towards those who are far from Jesus and ultimately to let Jesus rule and reign over everything. The first answer that we looked at for why Jesus and his disciples eat with tax collectors and sinners was that Jesus rules and reigns over all of it, that the table is his, that the authority to forgive sin is his. If you actually want to live this way, if you really want to follow Jesus's example around the table, then this is, this is where you have to start, that he has all authority. You also have to believe and live like he sovereignly pervades everything. Your table belongs to him. Your time belongs to him. Your budget belongs to him. Your friendships, what other people think about you, it belongs to him. So today, if you are holding on to any corner of your life, if you're keeping anything at arm's length, trying to maintain your own preference or comfort or control, let it go. Give it up. Let let Jesus encroach on all of it. He will call you to inconvenient things, but when Jesus floods in, sin runs scared and life is sweet. It's hard and sweet. It's challenging and beautiful. So give him all of it. It all belongs to him. Take every chance to make much of Jesus. There's no occasion that's too small. There's no risk that's too great. So because of that, we eat and we drink because the bridegroom is here. Let's pray.